Welcome to episode one of The Edge of Energy, a podcast about pushing Canada's energy transition forward. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Overcoming a pandemic requires the work and resolve of every order of government, every community, and every individual. When 2020's pandemic called for the world to stand still, we did. Health organizations and scientists researched, diagnosed, and informed. Governments rallied, tallied, and delegated. Individuals were called to action and communities organized. But during the storm, the cracks in our foundation also became apparent. Health systems and economic infrastructure were tested and precautionary principles were left behind. But in the end, we were all in it together and had to respond as one society. That same tenacity we showed will be needed in another international emergency, the global climate crisis. Scientists have identified that increases in greenhouse gas emissions have led to change in global temperatures over time. And if this continues, we are all at risk. As a result, policymakers, businesses, and communities have been forced to take a number of critical steps to achieve sustainability. One of those steps is transitioning to clean energy. Marin Smith is one of the leaders committed to the task of advancing clean energy and climate solutions. Founder and executive director of Clean Energy Canada, Marin is working to transform Canada's energy systems to reduce fossil fuel dependence. In the halftime show of the 2021 Super Bowl, one of the key moves towards this goal took center stage. Did you know that Norway sells way more electric cars per capita than the US? Norway. <laughs> well, I won't stand for it. With GM's new Ultium battery, we're gonna crush those losers. Crush them! Let's go, America. That was a clip from an ad which played during the recent Super Bowl, featuring comedian Will Ferrell, representing America's ambitions to exceed Norway's lead in clean transportation with GM's electric vehicle rollout. Clean Energy Canada's executive director, Marin Smith, was just one of the millions that were tickled to see the way this played out on the world stage in such a poignant way. Great to have you here, Marin. Great to be here with you. Thanks. Of course, the humor of Will was a given. But what does this airing tell us about the transition towards cleaner energy? You know, what does the landscape look like? Where does Canada stand? That's a great question. So let's start with the global landscape. Let's start with transportation cars and trucks and buses. You know, we've had over a hundred years of using oil and gas to move our vehicles around. But over the last year, we've seen such a significant change. So globally, electric vehicle sales, they grew by 38% in 2020, despite the pandemic. Europe saw sales increase by 137%. They've now surpassed China as world leader in the EV market. And this happened in part because we saw the EU governments put EVs and clean transportation at the center of their COVID recovery plans. But it also happened because we're seeing the price of electric vehicles go down. We're seeing the range increase, so the technology is getting better. We're seeing consumers more comfortable with them. They understand them better. And we're seeing that people around the world, countries around the world, are experiencing climate change and are wanting to take action. We've seen over 100 countries have now committed to be net zero by 2050. And that's sending a signal 
both to the marketplace, to companies and to consumers. So we've seen here in North America a marked shift this year in 2021, where first Ford, they announced billions of dollars of investments into EVs, and then they doubled that investment to come to almost $22 billion by 2025. GM has also now set its goals and to be having cars, SUVs, and light pickup trucks with zero tailpipe emissions by 2035. Fiat Chrysler made announcements as well. So we have all of the Detroit Three committing to go to clean energy. And you mentioned the Super Bowl ad. That was really, for me, a real indicator of where things are going. We now have Super Bowl ads featuring electric vehicles. So in the transportation, while electric vehicles still make up a small part of the actual numbers of cars out there on the roads, we're seeing signals that this transition is going to happen much, much faster than we ever thought even a year or two ago. Most of the car companies around the world have been announcing their commitments and their strategies to get to be all electric by 2030, 2035, 2040. So for the transport sector, this is significant. The second big piece of the puzzle here is around electricity and energy. So let's talk about electricity. You know, renewable energy costs, they have dropped enormously as well. It's now cheaper than coal, oil, or gas to produce electricity in most jurisdictions. Solar dropped 82% in the last decade. Storage, the cost of batteries, fallen by 89% in the last decade. So what we're seeing here is that renewable energy, the cost of renewables plus storage, is actually in many countries cheaper than gas. So what does this mean for Canada? Well, transportation, that's oil, and Canada's an oil producer. So clearly, as we shift to EVs, the demand for our oil energy is going to go down. Different analysts have different numbers, 2022, 2025, 2030. But the demand for those, while it will continue, it's going to be declining. Then we get to what are the opportunities for Canada? Another one of those critical steps is economic sustainability. Jean-Francois Perrault, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist of Scotiabank, is one of the leaders committed to the task of supporting long-term economic growth while considering social, environmental and cultural impacts on communities. Jean-Francois, the move towards a low-carbon society certainly does take vision and buy-in, but mostly it's about investment. So, you know, what do conversations sound like within the various markets? Is there change? And what are the challenges you feel we face right now in Canada? For a company to say, actually, wait a minute, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose a block of investors. My share price might be lower. It might be more difficult for me to finance myself. And that is an extremely powerful driver of change on the part of the business community. And we've seen that happen already. And it's only, it's getting bigger and bigger, right? You've got the Black Rocks of the world talking about these things. You've got large pension funds, which control a huge amount of global capital, increasingly focused on this. And that's, that's triggering or it's, it's helping accelerate the change in, in mentality on the part of the business community. Going back to the early notion that businesses can do some of this stuff, but at the end of the day, they need to ensure that for that to happen, you need proper infrastructure, you need proper skills. And there is, you know, in a country like ours, a large role for government in doing that. So it's one thing for a company to say, well, I want to, you know, launch a green energy facility in the middle of Saskatchewan. But at the end of the day, if there's nothing to, to accommodate those workers or the pulling energy from the grid out there, then that's just not going to work. 
So it's very much actually incredibly interesting period of time where the symmetry of there's almost a perfect alignment of interests on the part of government and industry in this particular world, in large part because you've got investors saying, you know what, we're going to reward you if you do this, as opposed to in the past, which might have been actually, you know, this is a more costly thing. We're going to think about putting our money elsewhere. That's not the case anymore. So it's a really exciting time from that perspective. The SAP-like pace of progress by countries since the Paris Agreement was signed has shown that some of the milestones that were promised might not be as feasible as we thought. And so ask you both, give our listeners an idea of how do we actually get there and achieve those Paris goals? So meeting Paris targets have been a challenge for many countries, including Canada. In part, I would say, because some of the technology wasn't ready for prime time. It was still more expensive or it wasn't effective enough. And now one of the changes five years later is that some of those electric vehicles is a good example, are almost at cost parity with their fossil fuel powered counterparts. So small amounts of money can really help move them forward. The technologies are improved. And if we look at electricity, renewables, they have also the costs have dropped significantly and they are ready for prime time in that they do cost in some cases less than their fossil fuel counterparts. So that was one of the pieces was the technologies coming up to speed. And we still have technologies. Hydrogen is a great example that is, you know, is not cost competitive at this point. So there's still a technological pathway and some of these things are sorting themselves out. Hydrogen may well be the answer for our long haul transportation, as well as for things like steel making and cement making and other uh, industrial applications. So there's still some technology, but that was part of the challenge five years ago. Infrastructure is another piece of the challenge. We are talking about transitioning a massive amount of infrastructure from fossil fuel to, in many cases, to electrified infrastructure. Well, those are long projects that take many, many years to build. So we need to be understanding the, the pace at which some of that change is going to happen. It's going to continue to happen, but is slow. And what it really requires is the investment and the attention from the financial community, from governments to be putting their money where it belongs. I would say now, everywhere in the world, people are living and feeling the impacts of climate change, whether it's fires racing through countries like we've seen in California and Australia and British Columbia, whether it's flooding that we've seen in many places across Canada, Quebec, Alberta, Manitoba, the East Coast. Like we are living and feeling the impacts of climate change at this point. That is a catalyst for change. Secondly, we are seeing the financial community now put conditions on fossil fuel disclosure, climate change disclosure, on the risks associated with financial investment. So I think I'm optimistic that things are going to move more quickly than we've seen over the last five years. That said, there is an enormous amount of work. This is a big push. We need everything from policy and regulations and laws to financial investments to willingness to collaborate and alliances created where people can work together to ensuring that there is inclusion of people, that BIPOC and 
First Nations Indigenous people are being included, that there is just transition for workers in real meaningful ways. So the challenge is definitely before us. It's not going to be an easy lift, but I think that I've never seen more hope and more optimism than we are seeing in 2021, that we are going to be able to get this transition on the path that we need to. We've all just changed our lives from the COVID pandemic. And what that's taught us is that, in fact, we can change much more quickly than we thought we could. And I'm really hoping that we will now be targeting how we're going to do that in order to transition to a low carbon, zero emission society and economy and do it in a way that really works well for Canadians, that it really takes advantage of all the opportunities that we have for jobs and developing a strong economy for the coming decades. Well, again, I mean, turning to the last year, I think is really informative. Now, clearly, as with any kind of performance agreement, you can think of the Paris Accord as a, as a performance agreement. They're very often aspirational and you very often don't meet. There was a sense that when the Paris Accords were done, that the level of ambition that was required to meet that was not particularly likely. As desirable as that outcome was, it's just it's politics and economics. And, and again, change is costly and, and that played into the decision. But coming back to the last 12 months, I think we have observed and experienced that we can undergo pretty darn radical change in the space of a few weeks, few months, and you know, basically completely change our lives, obviously for public health reasons, in a way that maybe opens the door to accelerate a change or you know, more drastic change than we would have thought possible. Again, go back to a year ago, I mean, there was a period of time for about a month or two where like, nobody was driving their cars. And likely going forward, there's going to be a lot less folks taking planes for business than there have been in the past. A lot less people going into downtowns to work than in the past. So already there's going to be a benefit from that, if you will, from that perspective. But I think the more encouraging thing and the more interesting thing is just realize that through the last year that change is easier than we make it out to be. Now, obviously, this was a situation where government said, you're not going to do this and individuals by and large respected that. So it's a little bit different than just kind of change being organic. But I think it's fair to say that we kind of surprise ourselves with our ability and our willingness to subject ourselves to very, very, very significant life changes in the pursuit of a greater objective, which was to save lives, which when you think about it, it's kind of what climate change is all about. I mean, it's saving the planet, but in saving lives at the same time. So if we were able to do it for a very, very specific reason, I mean, I, I think we've opened the door to being able to do more from that perspective, given what we experienced. The transition away from historic energy producers, you know, it's changed a lot about our conversation on climate change. We're not just talking about eliminating pollution anymore. A lot of it's about economic strategy. And so what strategies are you hearing talked about in your respective industry? What progress and innovations do you think are being made today? Yeah, so I love that when Joe Biden came in, he said, when I hear the words climate action, I hear jobs, jobs, jobs. And it's very true. Economic strategy and climate strategy go hand in glove now. And Canada's got some great opportunities here. You know, one is our clean zero emission electricity. Canada's electricity right now is already 82% zero emission. And if we use this to power some of our industries, to power our transportation, to heat our homes and buildings, we are going to be able to reduce our emissions here. The other opportunity for Canada is we'll be able to make low-carbon goods and services. 
So here's our second advantage is we really have a lot of the building materials that are needed for our neighbor to the south, who's now got a strong commitment around clean energy and low carbon goods and services. So what do they need to build that economy? They need metals and minerals. They need cement, they need steel and wood. These are the major building materials. Well, Canada, our aluminum, for example, is the lowest carbon aluminum in the world because it's being manufactured with zero emission electricity. Our steel is lower carbon than in the United States and in other countries. And we could be making low carbon metals, low carbon minerals, low carbon cement and supplying that to the US and here in Canada. And the third thing that we have that's very strong is our clean technologies. We have some of the world's leading clean tech companies. If we talked about things like buses, we have four of the world's leading electric bus manufacturers here in Canada. We have other very interesting and exciting clean technologies that range from things like extracting lithium for batteries from oil sands wastewater to extracting hydrogen from oil, but with never releasing the carbon emissions, uh, you know, using this MAT system where they extract the hydrogen there to create a zero emission hydrogen. So those are just a couple of the many, many technologies. We've got Carbon Cure making cement and injecting carbon dioxide into it. So these are all three great opportunities. We've got a skilled workforce. We've got many advantages here in Canada. And really what Canada needs to do now is to really act, take advantage of these things and start moving on becoming a leader in exporting clean energies and low carbon goods and services. Well, I mean, I think the first thing, you know, obviously coming from the financial industry is how the financial industry is approaching risk and approaching decision to provide financing or not. And that's just not a banking issue. That's kind of a broader issue. And there, as we've indicated, there is investor focus is just driving all kinds of innovative behavior on the part of firms. And that, you know, that's industry specific. It's country specific. It reflects a, a range of different things. But the idea that there is an incentive for firms to innovate on essentially the climate front and others as well, but we're talking about climate in this context, is a really powerful driver of change and necessary driver of that change. I think the idea is, of course, one of the challenges with an industry like this or an industry in transition, and again, government comes in here to help to some extent, is by the very nature of the challenge that we face, we don't have all the answers. We don't know that this is going to be a knockout technology. That's going to be the game changer. This is the one that's going to work. It's a kind of a scientific process, right? You're going to try a whole bunch of things. A whole bunch of those things aren't going to work. And of course, you know, for the financial industry, you want to bet on winners. Like, I mean, it's it's perfectly fine to say we're going to finance everything. But at the end of the day, folks that are investing in these things want to earn a return. So they want to get a sense that this is the right one or these sets of tools are the right ones or these sets of approaches will benefit. And here also, I think there's a role for government to play as you kind of marry that because you've got to have governments can think really long term, right? They can say, you know what? We're going to take a chance on this industry. We're willing to sink billions of dollars into this. We're not sure it's going to work out. We know it's the right thing to try and facilitate. And as a result of that, you actually, again, coming back to this idea of leveraging the private sector with government support, just allowing private industry to take on more risk than they otherwise would because you know the government's there behind you, pushing you to do as much as we can in these absolutely critical industries. So that's, that's I think, the big challenge, right? It's, it's you know, obviously there's been a ton of successes, there's going to be a ton more, but from a, from a financing perspective, from an innovation perspective, it's just, 
there are going to be failures and you have to be willing to accept that there are going to be failures. And, and to the extent you can create a system where you encourage people to try things out, even if they fail, I mean, you're much more likely to succeed over the long run. Many times it feels like with ESGs, the E, the environmental side, that's really clear. And there's many visible metrics that investors can use to encourage action. But that S, the social impacts, doesn't ever seem to be as clearly defined. Can you give us some examples where you've seen investors really embed the social impact in this work? So the beauty of these ESG investors is they can focus on different things. Right. So you've got some that are more focused on the environmental side or the, you know, the pure economic benefits coming from the environmental side. And you've got others that focus much more squarely on the S or the G aspect of it, right? Which is rewarding companies that have particularly positive impact on the social side in a specific community, a specific geography, you know, across different industries or what it is. So I'm sure there are, there are hundreds of successful examples there. But again, I think you're right to point to the challenge, which is, that on the social side, it's a little bit harder for an investor to figure out, okay, what is what is the return that I'm getting here? Obviously, there is a return, but it's it's harder to quantify than in the environmental space where, you know, you hit a home run with the technology, well, that's a home run with technology. Whereas on the social side, again, you're deploying capital as an industry, as a firm, to try and achieve social objectives or incorporate a set of social considerations in the decision-making process, which for some, you know, they'll view as, well, that's necessarily going to reduce my rate of return. But that's, you know, an incredibly simplistic way to think about it. You know, when you think about it from a holistic perspective, from an economic perspective, from a national perspective, you know, it's very, very, very clear. And, and the pandemic's been a great example. It's very, very clear that when you don't maximize the societal engagement in whatever it is that you do, when you unknowingly set aside a certain group of society because you're not thinking about it in kind of the right framework, that comes at an economic cost. There's no question about it. So I think the really interesting dimension on the social side is may not apply particularly directly in in the context of the E side of things, but in uh, focusing on that in a much broader perspective, you're effectively raising that, you know, economic potential for the entire country. And, and you know, maybe you're, as a result of that, you've got more innovative folks, right? Because you've got, you've got a broader scope of workers to choose from, folks that are feel like they're more part of the decision-making process, that are less, less uh, marginalized than they were 5 or 10 or 15 years ago. And that's like it's an economic no-brainer. Now, maybe it took the pandemic in the last few years to, to make that crystal clear in the eyes of some. The fact that we are there are a set of investors out there that are focused on these kinds of outcomes, in addition to public pressure and kind of just general societal change and movements around that, like it's a fantastically, fantastically positive development. I mean, another way to think about it is you've got individuals who will say, I think an increasingly small fraction, but still some individuals out there who will say, you know, transitions are costly. And whether it's environmental and whether it's social, you know, there are there are costs associated with transitioning. And if you accept that that's true. It's not clear that that's true, but if you accept that that's true, why would you deprive yourself of every economic opportunity that's available to you to ensure that either those costs are minimized or that you capitalize on those costs? And a lot of things on the social side are things that actually have kind of have held us back. So if it takes private capital to, to kick us forward, then great. I mean, ideally you do it without, <laughs> ideally, you know, this is just kind of a natural thing, but, you know, it, I think it remains a challenge for, for some, some firms, some individuals. and various parts of our country and various parts of other countries. 
So Marin, the government of Canada, they've announced recently investments to take our transit systems and move them to cleaner power. I want you to imagine, if you were the project manager for this, what would your markers look like to get towards that goal? Maybe using 2030 as your first milestone. Yeah, well, transit's an exciting opportunity, and I'm really excited that the government has decided to focus on investing in transit, but also in zero emission transit. And they've signaled that they want to get 5,000 zero emission buses on the road. So this is an opportunity to shift out those old diesel buses. So if I was project manager, I'd be setting myself a goal for how many buses are we going to get on the road? Where are the cities that we're going to target first? And you mentioned air pollution, and you're right that the burning of diesel and all fossil fuels contributes to air pollution problems. So I'd probably be starting with some of our big cities. Secondly, I'd be looking at how to pair this commitment around zero emission transit with our Canadian companies so that we'd be creating jobs at home, so that we would be manufacturing these zero emission buses, whether they're school buses, Lion Electric in Quebec's making school buses or New Flyer in Manitoba. Uh, or transit buses, and ensuring that we get a win-win-win out of this, which is tackling climate change with low-carbon buses, creating jobs here at home, and improving health of Canadians by reducing air pollution. And I think when we think back on the days, once all our kids are getting onto electric school buses to go to school, we'll think back and scratch our heads and say, why did we have them standing beside those buses belching out pollutants and carcinogens on their way to school every day? You know, of course, these electric transit buses are going to be just so much better in so many ways for everyone. But it's about infrastructure. So it's about changing out the bus systems. It's about working with the electric companies and ensuring that we've got the electricity in the amount that we need in the right place. And then finally, right now, I'd be exploring how to make sure that we use those buses as part of our grid system, because this is one of the exciting opportunities is if you look at school buses, but all buses, they spend a chunk of time sitting. So if you have a big battery bank in there, you can help stabilize your grid by being able to tap into those buses and the power that they have at times of peak demand, and then feeding the electricity back into them when you're not at peak demand. So some really exciting opportunities here to make transit much better for riders, as well as an integral part of the grid system in a way that's going to make our grid more stable. Today's energy's jobs don't look like yesterday's. They're diverse. They're all across Canada. And they include all kinds of skilled Canadians. People like Ashley, retrofitting homes in BC. Or Gordon Planis, chief of the Souk First Nation, leading the way with solar installations in his community. Or Alvia, an engineer turning Edmonton's waste into fuel. And people like Pierre, a former oil and gas worker, now with a world-leading clean tech company in Montreal. We're at the beginning of an economy-wide transformation one for the history books. That was Marin Smith at one of our very own Walrus Talks, highlighting the major changes that are happening in the energy industry today. Now, we know the transition to net zero will disrupt lives and might cause job losses. So how do we ensure we mitigate the social costs that happen as we shift our economy? 
the truth is there will be a lot of jobs created. And so what we need to ensure is that we do things in a way that is inclusive, that ensures a just transition for workers so that we've got the training programs in place to help transition workers if they need to into new areas. You know, I've been talking with the unions in the auto sector who recognize that some jobs will actually be pretty similar if you're making an ICE vehicle or a, an electric vehicle. Some jobs will change because, you know, if we can get a battery manufacturing sector off the ground, those are going to be new types of skills and new types of jobs that we haven't had in the past. But we can set people up for success through training for that. And then, yes, we need to ensure that we're also addressing reconciliation through all of this. But I believe that there are opportunities that we should be able to do this in a way where we create good, long-term, stable jobs, well-paying across the country. So what do I mean by that? I'm going to use electric vehicles. We've been talking about them a lot, but they're a great example. So Canada has all of the metals and minerals that are needed to create electric vehicle batteries and all batteries because batteries and storage are going to be a part of the new energy system. There's going to be a strong global demand for batteries and Canada is set up that it could be a real leader here. And in doing this, we need to actually get a lot of those critical metals and minerals we need to be developing some more mines and we need to be refining some of those materials. Well, that could be done in a way in partnership with First Nations in ways that is ethical and sustainable so that we could actually be producing these metals and minerals in a way that we could brand them as ethically and environmentally sound. Then as you move along the supply chain, right now we're making very few batteries in Canada. So this is a big growth opportunity. We have the metals and minerals. We have clean electricity that could be used to power these battery plants. We have materials like aluminum and plastics that are also needed in car manufacturing. So we have a lot to offer. But what's it going to take? It's going to take Canada actually taking some action now. We see other countries that have really leapt in, the EU, the UK, Asia, where they are putting money in place to get some of these industries going. And I would say that's probably Canada's real weakness is that we're often thinking about things, doing studies, having roundtables, ensuring everybody's been consulted. And we've already done a lot of that in Canada over the last few years. The time to act is now to get these things off the ground. Like I say, that's going to ensure that we set ourselves up for successful, sustained jobs over the long term. Jean-Francois, we really appreciate you for joining us today and sharing your point of view and giving us insight into the monetary picture about how we can shift our energy infrastructure here in Canada. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kofi. Marin, we really appreciate you joining us. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in a follow-up commercial featuring one of our own clean energy technologies, maybe powering one of those Norwegian ferries. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I look forward to that too. Thanks so much. Marin Smith is the founder and executive director of Clean Energy Canada, the Canadian representative on the International Clean Energy Ambassadors Corps, and is the co-chair of the BC government's Climate Solutions and Clean Growth Advisory Council. Marin has the distinct pleasure of helping to position Canada as a leader in this mission to transform our energy systems and reduce the risks of climate disruption. Jean-Francois Perrault is the Senior Vice President and Chief Economist of Scotiabank. 
He leads a team of economists to support domestic and international lines of business. He helps clients from retail to capital markets by providing perspectives, insights, and forecasts on the economy, financial markets, and policy developments. That completes our current episode of The Edge Energy. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Thank you to all of those folks who worked hard to put this show together this week. Mahira Lashman, Angela Misery, Camille Hemming, and Sheena Rossiter. Look for episode number two on your favorite podcasting app, where we'll explore transformations and innovation in the transportation sector. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.